Welcome to the Activist Files, the Center for Constitutional Rights podcast. We're your host, Rob Santiago. And Leah Todd. How's everything, Leah? I'm making it. Okay, okay. We've got an exciting episode, but as always, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and rate us on iTunes, Spotify, and SoundCloud. It's true. We have a very interesting episode ahead. Um, Here we have communications director Chandra Hazlitt talking with photographer Ariana Faye Allensworth and map maker and interactive media developer Sam Robbie of the Anti-Eviction Mapping Project. This project is a data visualization, data analysis, and storytelling collective documenting the dispossession and resistance upon gentrifying landscapes. Ariana and Sam provide an overview of the project, explain how the Ellis Act has impacted evictions in California, and talk about the role oral history plays. Ariana shares how she is collaborating with the project to produce a youth participatory action research project that combines photo voice, which is a methodology that uses photography as a form of inquiry, and oral history interviews to examine New York City Housing Authority histories through the lens of longtime residents. Welcome to the Activist Files. I'm Chandra Hayslett, the Communications Director at the Center for Constitutional Rights, and I'm here with Ariana Faye Allensworth and Sam Raby. Ariana is a Brooklyn-based cultural producer, photographer, and educator working at the intersection of art, culture, and activism. She currently manages the Teen Academy program at the International Center of Photography, where she creates dynamic spaces for high school students to cultivate their skills as leaders and visual storytellers. Ariana is also a 2019 Laundromat Project Artist-in-Residence, through which she is collaborating with the Anti-Eviction Mapping Project to produce Stay in Power, a youth participatory action research project. Sam is a Brooklyn-based map maker and interactive media developer who is a researcher and data lead at Just Fix NYC. Also a member of the Anti-Eviction Mapping Project Collective, Sam is a strong believer that justice Advocacy and storytelling should inform technology, not the other way around. Sam works with Geographic Information Systems, or GIS mapping, information design, oral history, and data journalism to tell complex stories to large audiences. Welcome, Ariana and Sam. Thank you. Thank you so much. I'm so excited about this. I attended a presentation that Ariana did that I got an invitation through the Laundromat Project, and we'll talk a little bit about the Laundromat Project toward the end, but I was so just so interested in the anti-eviction mapping project and thought our audience would really be interested in learning about this. And I'm also just interested in learning more about it. So that's how Ariana and Sam ended up on the activist files, because thanks to the laundromat project, I was invited to this presentation. As I said in the intro, both of you all are members of the collective. Ariana, can you tell our audience a little bit how the project started? What are the goals? And just about the anti-eviction mapping project. Yeah, sure. Um, So the Anti-Eviction Mapping Project is a multimedia storytelling collective documenting dispossession and resistance upon gentrifying landscapes. Uh, We have chapters in New York City, the San Francisco Bay Area, and Los Angeles. Um, The project was founded in 2013 by tenant organizers in San Francisco. Um, They originally thought they were just going to produce one map Um, to support their on-the-ground anti-displacement organizing. Um, That was about um, LSEC evictions, which is a type of no-fault evictions in San Francisco, which I can explain the nuances of later. Um, But after really realizing the radical possibilities of maps and the ways in which they can support their work, um, 
The project has since produced hundreds of maps and narratives um, about displacement resistance um, upon gentrifying landscapes in cities all over the country. And um, the the impetus for the project was really to create data to support on the ground organizing. Um, so they really the project really believes that we don't want to produce maps just for maps producing maps for maps sake and just mm-hmm. to create data, but really believe in linking it to political action and organizing. So many of the maps we've produced have been produced in collaboration and in solidarity with anti-displacement work um, and on the ground organizers. Um, I think it's also important to mention that the project was founded in the wake of the tech boom in San Francisco, um, which started, you know, in around 2011 um, and it's really at this time that we saw the convergence of tech and gentrification and kind of the intersection intersection of real estate speculation and um, and landlords really trying to capitalize and cash in on the wealth being generated by Silicon Valley. And it was at that time that we really began to see um, landlords and real estate developers using really savvy tactics to get rid of um, rent-controlled and rent-stabilized tenants in San Francisco, who many of whom are living um, on fixed incomes or in rent-stabilized apartments. Um, and so the the project really um, was birthed out of a, a rapid response effort to document kind of this crisis that was happening at a pace that was really difficult to manage and, and grapple with. Um, and the, the initial maps really created a space to make that crisis really visually accessible to folks on the ground. Thank you for that. There was so much to unpack in that. And as we always do, we're going to put a ton of resources on our website so our listeners can find out about the anti-eviction mapping project. But you you mentioned that you didn't want to create maps for maps sake. And Sam, I'm going to bring you in in just a sec because I know Just Fix NYC played a really prominent role in creating these maps and you are a map maker. And then you mentioned the Ellis Act. Sam, let's bring you in to talk about the role of maps and how you all use the maps in this project and just how Just Fix NYC came to this partnership. Totally. Yeah. And so I guess just to clarify, like the mapping project, I think even when we came to New York City, always kind of played the role in actually creating the maps and in driving the content that we use to create the maps. So like when we talk, I guess we can hold that for when you talk about the New York City project that we did recently. Um, but Just Fix was more kind of supporting in terms of data analysis and web development. Okay. Um, but I guess, you know, in terms of how the mapping project works with this practice, um, you know, first of all, I think we're constantly trying to figure out a way to really get the data that we collect and the maps that create um, into the hands of the folks who are really on the front lines mm-hmm. and are really involved in direct political action against a lot of, um, you know, within these movements that we're trying to support. Yeah. I think what's hard about working with maps and also just with like this kind of data and technology in general is that it's just historically been um, in the hands of those in power and Mm -hmm. also been used to kind of create and control groups of people who don't actually also have that power, Um, you know? And so that, that is a really tough legacy as a practice to inherit as map makers. Um, and so, you know, and in addition to constantly making sure that our work is driven by techno- tenant organizing and that we're not just creating maps um, just out of sheer curiosity or mm-hmm. for the sake of creating these things, we recognize that like these 
these things that we're creating aren't neutral, even though that's how they've always kind of been presented to the world. And that when we create a map and we're visualizing data, we want that to be accompanied by political action. Okay. You know, and so pretty much since the beginning, um, the maps that we've been creating haven't been standalone entities, but have been, um, you know, work that has been a combination of resource, re- research and analysis that has always been hand in hand with some, you know, on the ground organizing mm-hmm. or direct action campaign. Um, that's been really important to us because, you know, so, so much in other uh, other spheres, this kind of work, data visualization work can have this kind of neutrality to it that, you know, doesn't really kind of hides the power that it actually has. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit more about the direct action campaigns that f- how people have been using these maps sure. with direct action campaigns? Yeah. So one of the the earliest maps that we produced was um, our tech bus eviction map, which was a map that really visualized the intersections of the gentrifying effects of the tech industry Mm -hmm. and the kind of intersection of real estate speculation as it related to Silicon Valley and the wealth being generated in Silicon Valley. Um, So at the time, um, tech tech buses were using public infrastructure um, to transport their employees to Silicon Valley every every day. Um, as context, Silicon Valley is about a 30-mile distance from San Francisco. Mm-hmm. So while many tech workers might work in Silicon Valley, many prefer to live in San Francisco mm-hmm. um, because it's like more of a metropolitan area yeah. than Palo Alto is. Um, and so one incentive is tech buses, um, which at the time were illegally using... Um, public bus stops to pick up their employees in kind of private luxury buses every mm-hmm. every day. Um, and many San Francisco residents were kind of enraged that public infrastructure was being used to um, support the industry, but also, as many feared, um, real estate speculation was higher in areas where there were tech bus stops. So this map really visualized the number of evictions that were taking place near tech bus stops. Mm -hmm. Um, And the map surfaced that 69% of San Francisco's no-fault evictions between 2011 and 2013 occurred within four blocks of private tech bus stops. Um, And as context in San Francisco, no-fault evictions are issued to tenants who have not violated their leases, whereas mm-hmm. fault evictions are issued due to lease violation. So no fault evictions are often used by real estate speculators to evict tenants. And as we found, the proximity of tech bus stops causes further speculation. Um, and one way that that map intersected with on-the-ground organizing was this data was used to support um, direct, a direct action campaign um, called Google Bus Blockade. So mm-hmm. there were... Um, direct action efforts kind of in the streets of San Francisco that kind of blocked the Google buses as they were transporting residents. Um, cool. And that's just like, I think, a really early example of the ways in which the project um, from its inception was really committed to using the data to support on the ground um, tenant organizing. So were people literally like blocking the bus stop? Yeah. Just mm-hmm. with their bodies? With their bodies, that's yeah. Mm-hmm. It's beautiful. Yeah. yeah. And it was, um, and you know, while uh, tech bus stops are still a very existing practice in San mm-hmm. Francisco, um, I think that the map really visualized the ways in which the tech industry was propelling gentrification in ways that I think hadn't 
um, in a lot of ways been concretized yeah. um, on such direct terms where we were able to really directly correlate the number of evictions with tech bus stops was really mm -hmm. significant um, that early kind of on in the tech yeah. boom. Yeah. You mentioned no-fault evictions, which reminded me that we should talk about the Ellis Act. Can you all talk a little bit about the Ellis Act and just how that informed your research and this project? As I mentioned earlier, the Ellis Act eviction map was one of the first maps that were created by the Mapping Project's founders. Um, and the Ellis Act is a type of no-fault eviction um, prevalent in many rent-controlled California cities, um, as mentioned earlier, um, San Francisco, in San Francisco, no-fault evictions are issued to tenants who have not violated their leases, whereas fault evictions are issued due to lease violations. Mm -hmm. um, the Ellis Act is a California state law that was written in 1985 that permits landlords to essentially exit the real estate market. Um, evict tenants due to no fault of their own and change the use of the building, most often into ownership units or, for example, condos, mm -hmm. um, effectively destroying the affordable rental housing. Um, it wasn't really used, like, although it was in the books um, in California in the 1980s, it wasn't really used in San Francisco until 1997, um, which is when the Ellis Act eviction map that we created starts. Um, and it began being used in mass during the first dot-com boom, um, when landlords realized that they could take advantage of the wealth being generated in Silicon Valley um, and evict longtime residents who are often in rent-controlled units and on fixed incomes and create new housing that goes for a lot more money. Mm -hmm. um, and we saw it being used ma in mass again during 2011, which is when the tech boom 2.0 um, was kind of at its early stages. Um, from 2012 to 2013, the number of Ellis Act evictions rose by 175%, which wow. is pretty significant. Um, and the map also really made visible the ways in which the Ellis Act was being used strategically in historically working class and POC neighborhoods. Mm -hmm. um, so the map really shows where there is a concentration of Ellis Acts yeah. um, and just further demonstrating the ways in which it is kind of a predatory practice mm -hmm. um, to get rid of um, stable working class and often like seniors living on fixed incomes. Um, and they're, you know, clearly being targeted. Um, the map also revealed that about 80% of the no-fault evictions that were issued by Ellis Acts were done within a year of ownership. So mm -hmm. although we, when we think of the Ellis Acts, we think of it as like mom and pop landlords who want to kind of retire or go out of business of being a landlord. Mm -hmm. Actually, what was happening was people were buying up the properties and within a year, Ellis Acting, um, all of the rent-controlled tenants. Wow. Um, so just further making clear the ways in which it was not being used for the in, its intended purposes, but really being used um, by real estate speculators to get rid of um, rent-controlled housing. Mm -hmm. um, and it's also important to note that like in San Francisco, rent-controlled apartments only apply to buildings um, that were built before 1975. So when someone gets rid of a rent-controlled tenant or rent-controlled tenant or rent-controlled apartment, you can think of it as like a non-renewable resource. So when those buildings are converted to condos, there's not going to be uh, another rent-controlled right. unit created. Right. Um, so essentially, we're depleting kind of rent-stabilized mm -hmm. apartments. So often when when folks get 
evicted from their rent-stabilized apartments. They're often being evicted from the city altogether. Um, Currently in San Francisco, you know, the average one-bedroom apartment is anywhere from three to $4,000 a month. So if I'm a senior who's paying, you know, six to $700 a month for my rent-controlled apartment, there's often nowhere else for them to go. And so many people are yeah, leaving the city altogether mm-hmm. when they get Ellis Act evicted or um, one of the many other types of no-fault evictions on the books in California. Yeah, wow. Is there an area in California where there's a concentration of people who are going who have been evicted in San Francisco? Like in New York City, I live in Harlem, and with the gentrification that's been happening in Harlem, a lot of people go next door to the Bronx. So is there a place outside of San Francisco where a lot of people are settling Yeah, I mean, it's definitely like a challenge to track where people go. There is one map that Matt, um, Sam worked on that kind of did track a small concentration of folks that Mm -hmm. um, were relocated. I think generally uh, a lot of folks are moving to Contra Costa County and like the outer Mm -hmm. suburbs. And we do see an increased amount of suburban poverty and a larger number of folks relocating to the outer suburbs. But also, you know, some folks move to the South, um, mm. um, Atlanta. Mm-hmm. There's, you know, folks kind of go all over. Right. And so that was, so this was, I think, in 2015, we were working with a group called the Eviction Defense Collaborative, which mm-hmm. is more of like a case-based um, tenant rights nonprofit in the Bay Area. Okay. Um, and we had this partnership with them where they actually gave us access to some data that they collected on their own around where some of their clients relocated after an eviction. And, you know, as Ariana said, um, that's not a statistic that the government keeps track of. Yeah. And frankly, I don't actually know any jurisdiction in the country that keeps track of relocation data, hmm. um, which is really quite a shame because it's really important to know this kind of stuff from yeah. a policy perspective as well as an advocacy perspective. I remember that, you know, there was a critical mass of folks who relocated within San Francisco after their eviction. Mm-hmm. So it's about a sample size around like um, 600 folks that we actually got this data for. Okay. Um, but apart from that, yeah, I mean, as you said, right outside San Francisco, but people literally went all across the state. Some people actually traveled outside of the country after their eviction. Wow. Um, you know, so they're really, um, they're, the evidence strongly suggested that the... the 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 standard isn't for folks to stay local, mm-hmm. right? That a, a really large portion of folks who face that eviction were no longer living remotely close to where they were so living. They were truly being displaced. Yes. Mm-hmm. Wow. We're a podcast, so we obviously believe in oral history, and I know oral history is a component of the anti eviction mapping project. Can you talk about why you wanted to include oral history? And we're going to talk about Edwin Lindo in a second, but if there are any stories that made an impact on you. Edwin's interview is such a powerful example of so many of the ways in which our project has tried to really draw attention to the intersections of racial surveillance, displacement, and um, and gentrification. Mm-hmm. Um, I will say that we started incorporating narrative work into the project about a year in. So the project started in 2013 Mm -hmm. and we released uh, our narratives of displacement and resistance map in 2014. Um, And it really was the created in response to um, while as anti-eviction, I think as the data visualization maps that we were producing were, 
we also recognized that it wasn't painting a full picture of the eviction crisis in San Francisco. Um, And also there's so many stories that dots on a map can't tell. Mm -hmm. Um, And we wanted to make sure that we weren't reproducing the very violence of maps that we were trying to counteract, right? Whereas like only producing maps about loss can further erase the nuance and richness of story Mm -hmm. that I think every dot on the map holds a, a deep story of memory and place and belonging. So we found that the oral history format of an interview really provided residents with agency over authoring their own stories. Mm -hmm. Um, And we use a life history approach to our interviews, um, which is very common in oral history practice, which essentially tries not to just reduce someone to their eviction story and only creating a story or targeted questions around their story of loss, but also gives them an opportunity to share their migration histories to California, their Mm -hmm. memories of their block, of their neighborhood, Mm -hmm. um, and also like assert the nuances and complicatedness of of place. Um, And so all of the maps um, or all of the oral histories on the narratives of displacement map, they're um, available to listen to in short and long format. So all of the interviews are shortened into a five-minute clip. Mm -hmm. And then there's also a, you know, longer form hour to hour and a half long interview as well to allow multiple entry points um, and also allow folks to to really bear witness to the full stories of folks. How many oral histories? It's probably over 80 to 100 at this time. Yeah. If we're thinking about the combination of San Francisco Bay Area, Mm -hmm. we have a chapter in Los Angeles, and then we've also begun doing oral histories in New York City as well. Yeah. We both mentioned Edwin Lindo, and um, we're going to put a link on our website to that oral history, and then people can kind of scroll through the others. But he talks about the root shock his father experienced when he was displaced from his neighborhood. So can both of you all talk about how the emotional toll shows up when people are evicted from their neighborhoods Mm -hmm. and how it's not just, you know, I'm taking my belongings and moving, but just how that shows up emotionally in people? Yeah. Yeah, it in Edwin's interview he invokes the concept of root shock which was a concept explored and investigated by uh, Dr. Mindy Thompson Fullalove in in her publication by the same title mm-hmm. and it really it uses the metaphor of a plant and when a plant is um uprooted from its like original um soil mm-hmm. and placed in another one that it undergoes a process of root shock where um the roots have a hard time kind of taking hold yeah. and and being stabilized kind of in a new context. And I think it really beautifully captures the the trauma of displacement and and provides a trauma lens with which to understand the impact of eviction and displacement. Often when we think of eviction or displacement, we think of it as like a physical dislocation or a physical yeah. um, uprooting from one's environment. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think what root shock provides is a a lens through which to understand how um, there's also like emotional ecosystems that are disrupted, um, systems of care and survival that Mm -hmm. people establish with their neighbors, their community. um, And and it it provides, yeah, a necessary, I think, layer of analysis um, that that folks can even be still living in the same neighborhood that they grew up in. But when everything's changing around you, you can also be culturally displaced Mm -hmm. or uprooted. Um, in ways that aren't physical, but are right. emotional and um, 
and can affect your way of life and maintaining the values of that community. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I I think a theme that comes up in a lot of the oral histories that the mapping project conducted is just the theme of feeling like an intruder in your own home, Mm -hmm. you know, which I, to me has always really captured, um, you know, this concept of root, root shot, you know, like where, um, you know, where when you start treating neighborhoods and homes as a commodity rather than something that really is a human right, um, that's when you can get these kinds of like emotional breaks between, you know, how how a home is supposed to feel and then how it's being treated, um, Mm -hmm. you know, in the mode of capitalism that is creating all of these issues. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's so powerful. I'm going to switch gears a little bit and talk about the laundromat project. So congrats on your artist and residence. For those who don't know, the laundromat project is a nonprofit that advances artists and neighbors as change agents in their own communities. And this year's theme for the artists and residents is abundance. Um, so Ariana, can you tell us about how you're using the anti-mapping project in New York City and the surrounding areas and how you're bringing that into your work with the Laundromat Project. My project is titled Staying Power, and it really investigates kind of what becomes possible when residents are treated as co-authors and experts um, and authors of of critical inquiry. Um, The project is exploring the past, present, and possible futures of public housing through the lens of residents who were raised and or live in public housing. Um, and the the way in which I arrived at at thinking of of NYCHA as the place in which I would do my residency was thinking about why it was important to assert a narrative of abundance about public housing um, in the face of a, a moment and in time in which much of the narrative surrounding public housing in New York City is a narrative of its failure and its deficit. Um, and something that I learned really deeply from my involvement with the San Francisco chapter of the Mapping Project was the ways in which a narrative of failure of public housing has been used to justify the demolition, resale, um, mm-hmm. or um, outright removal of public housing in cities um, throughout the the United States. Uh, many cities throughout the country are using really aggressive strategies to downsize their public housing stock. Mm-hmm. Um, and the ways in which visual language and kind of an optics of failure and um, and ruin are used to justify that demolition. Mm-hmm. Um, and at the same time, New York City remains one of the largest housing authorities in the country. Mm-hmm. Um, and as it navigates uh, its capital deficit, which is amounting to an estimated $32 billion, um, the, the city is beginning to kind of roll out a number of policies and strategies to address the capital deficit issues. Um, And at the same time, it it felt important to amidst this kind of narrative and dialogue around public housing's failure and deficit to also assert a narrative of abundance and the ways in which people can still be materially poor, but still have lives that are abundant and rich in traditions and systems of care and survival um, and how to kind of counter and 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 parallel those narratives with the the ways in which NYCHA is, is failing them. Um, many NYCHA organizers are advocating and asserting that amidst the rollout of several of the 
um, de Blasio's kind of NYCHA 2.0 plan, which involves a number of strategies to privatize the um, day-to-day management of NYCHA buildings. Um, At the forefront of that is a feeling that many residents have been left out of core decision-making tables um, Mm -hmm. in strategizing ways to address the capital deficit. Um, And so the project that I'm I'm working on um, is using kind of photography as a tool to kind of assert the wisdom, perspective, and experiences of residents um, that are currently living in NYCHA um, and allow them the tools and resources to tell the stories that they want to tell about their lived experiences. Mm -hmm. Um, So this past summer, I've been working with residents of Lafayette Gardens, which is a mid-sized NYCHA building on the Clinton Hill Bed-Stuy border. the project has three kind of core strains. One of them is um, a photo booth and a mobile portrait studio. So I collaborated with um, high school students to produce a mobile portrait studio that was kind of set up in the NYCHA's um, Lafayette Gardens Community Center, where residents were able to be photographed in a way that they wanted to be seen. Mm-hmm. Um, and the other layer of the project is Photo Voice, which is a participatory research methodology that uses photography as a form of inquiry and gives cameras to those who are directly affected by an issue. Um, and they then create images that respond to prompts and and other mm-hmm. sorts of inquiries. So I've been working with a group of young people that live in Lafayette Gardens to essentially kind of broadly answer the question, if this place could tell a story, what would it be? Yeah. And they each were given a disposable camera and given kind of 27 exposures to answer that question. Mm -hmm. And then the final layer of the project is building upon um, the oral history tradition of the anti-eviction mapping project and um, adding a layer of narrative to kind of the visual, the visuals of the project. Yeah. As a communicator, narrative shifting is so important. And it sounds like you all are trying to shift the narrative coming out of the, the housing project. So is it too early to say what some of the stories are that are coming out? Or should we just stay tuned? <laughs> I would say stay tuned. I would say stay tuned. I mean, we haven't begun analyzing the data from kind of what we've collected so far. Mm-hmm. Um, I will say that um, there is like so much rich history. Like many of the residents um, in public housing are seniors, and so many of them have lived in the building mm-hmm. since they were built. Yeah, um, and so. In thinking about the crisis of gentrification the city is in, um, the essential ways in which NYCHA remains like an essential resource for folks on fixed incomes and for working class folks mm-hmm. to have stable and affordable housing, like cannot be, you know, overstated. Yeah. Um, and that often these buildings are situated within very gentrified um, neighborhoods. Mm-hmm. And so we do see um, the ways in which a lot of the strategies that are being used to address kind of the capital deficit are leaning on the private market to solve those problems. Mm-hmm. And I just um, urge, you know, extreme caution in the ways in which, um, you know, the city is leaning on the private sector to solve the public infrastructure problems. Yeah. Um a few of the developments, or only one development has been RAD converted, which is a 
the rental assistance demonstration, which is a a type of conversion that shifts the day-to-day management of NYCHA to Mm. that of a private developer. Um, And... They're, only one in the city. Can you clarify? Only one in the city is rad converted, or one that you're working with? Only one in the city. One okay. one NYCHA building, and there's an, there's a plan for it's a like third. A test. Yeah, there's a plan for yeah. a third of NYCHA buildings to be rad converted. Okay. Um, because in doing that, it shifts the building to be from public housing mm-hmm. to Section Eight, um, which allows okay. them to lean on kind of private investment yeah. funds to make repairs. Yeah. So. Um, there is like early fear um, around heightened evictions yep. being possible in mm-hmm. kind of rad conversion converted yeah. um, buildings. Yeah. Um, and that I think that's where we see kind of the work of the mapping project and um, NYCHA really intersecting. Um, and and Sam can probably talk a little yeah, bit about just, the mm-hmm. the 2018 evictions map, which also kind of revealed um some really important data about the number of evictions in NYCHA, but also citywide. Yeah, Sam, I was just about to try to swing us back to anti-eviction in New York City. So can you talk about what you all are doing with that and the 2018 project? Absolutely. So um, one of the big projects that we worked on earlier this year, like in the spring, was this joint project that we did with Just Fix NYC and the Right to Council Coalition. Um, And so just for context on that, right to counsel is this law that was passed that allows anyone who is within a certain income range and lives within certain areas around the city to have free legal representation when they're being evicted. Um, And that was won by this coalition of folks that um, involve tenant organizers and folks more in the legal aid sector of things. Um, There's this official group called the Right to Counsel Coalition that does a lot of work to um, promote to promote the law, to raise awareness about it, to fight for stronger legislation around that same issue, and also to organize tenants. Mm-hmm. And so we worked directly with them on this project. Um, the project essentially had two parts. It was um, a map of evictions in 2018 with the ability to look up and see who the owner of those buildings were, who was responsible mm-hmm. for those. And so that wow. allowed, and that was the precise part of the project that the anti-eviction mapping project developed, which okay. was this map of evictions from 2018. Um, The other piece that Just Fix worked on was a list using that same data of the worst evictors in these areas where you do have this law. Okay. So that's kind of the tagline of that was like the worst evictors in areas where eviction defense is erect. Mm. And so it was not only doing this kind of narrative work of instead of, you know, kind of echoing this idea of the tenant blacklist that a lot of people talk about. Yeah. We're kind of almost making a landlord blacklist and yes. actually shifting the blame from it being about, you know, mom and pop tenants being abused by mom and pop landlords being tormented by, quote unquote, bad tenants mm-hmm. to these corporate landlords owning property around the city who are using eviction as a business model. Yeah. Um, and so the project like a lot of projects the mapping project works on was tied in with this week of action okay. where we released the, this website that included the map that allowed users to look up all evictions in 2018 and the list that sort of called out these different bad actors. Um, we released that website during this week where there is an organized um, rally and protest in 
four out of the five boroughs targeting mm-hmm. a different worst evictor from the list. Okay. Um, and so that you know that was really that was really crucial to get the timing right on that. Yeah. And it was it was a very intense group effort from these three different parties trying to collaborate on this. And I think it was you know ultimately a really successful collaboration in that sense. Mm-hmm. I think some of the biggest challenges are were actually in terms of getting access to the data. Um, and that's a common thing, you know, and a big piece of also why I think it's so important for the mapping project to include oral history, not only to have this personal piece involved, but also to recognize the limitations of the numeric data that the city provides mm-hmm. us. You know, it's a common problem that data that you get from, you know, a city's open data portal won't always be in the best format to actually figure out what's not working yeah. and actually take a critical stance. And so I mean, that's very apparent in New York where not only do we not have eviction data before 2017, the eviction data that we have is that's only... It's just great. Yeah, right. You can't <laughs> access anything before 2017. A big piece of the effort, which actually involved um, like a half year long process was actually making the data that we do have for mm-hmm. 2017 on usable. Yeah. Right. So the way that it's presented is only addresses that a court martial inputs into their system. And it could be in any format, mm. which makes it impossible to actually link those to buildings and space. And so something that a lot of volunteer groups, including the mapping project helped on was actually processing and cleaning that data and deduplicating that into a way that it, we actually can use it for any kind of data analysis. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that was a pretty unprecedented thing that was crucial not only for this, but for many, many projects around the city. Yeah. Um, and I, just calling out the Housing Data Coalition as well, which is this group of volunteers that work um, to sort of create more access around housing data. Yeah. Um, I mean, the other crucial thing, too, is we only have access to executed evictions. F- evictions that are filed, we do not have access to publicly. And we're only able to use an estimate from 2013 to 2015 that was actually released many years ago in this project. Can you talk about like evictions that are filed versus executed? Mm-hmm. So you file an eviction and then what happens? Well, how does it get to the point of execution? Right. Yeah. So that um, essentially eviction, a landlord can file an eviction um, vacuously. Mm-hmm. And so the crucial piece about the distinction is that a lot of a lot of landlords will file many evictions multiple times sometimes to the same tenant when they actually haven't violated their lease terms or actually mm-hmm. there there is no there is no um, just cause to to re- evict them uh-huh. by law mm-hmm. um, and that'll be a tactic that folks use to intimidate people to leave yeah. and so it'll actually okay. create what people call informal evictions mm-hmm. where people will get get scared rightfully so or just get so fed up with the process of have it receiving these filings and having to go to court to sort of fight yeah. it, that they'll just leave. Yeah. Okay. And essentially that's the same outcome. Someone's still losing their home. Yeah. Um, you know, and so an executed eviction is really coming at the very end of the process where the, a court has ordered for that person to be evicted and there's a court martial sent to their apartment to file that eviction notice in person. Okay. That is the that is the data set that we have been able to get our hands on. Mm-hmm. And the issue with that is that a lot of landlords and a lot of actual evictions won't actually go that far and that folks will leave before the end of that process. 
And so part of the fight that we're all fighting is also to get access to that data. So we, we not only see these executed evictions, but also can see the larger picture and also see the ratio, you know, looking at how, how much a landlord's filing for evictions versus how many evictions actually get carried out yeah. in the court system mm. really tells us how much they're using it, not absolutely towards the narrative of, oh, just trying to get rid of a quote-unquote bad tenant, but really using it as a business tax. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. And something that's, I think, significant about that distinction, too, is that the evictions map revealed that there were 18,000 court-martial executed evictions mm-hmm. in 2018. So to think that that is not even the full picture right. Right. of the number of eviction filings total, right. I think, just shows... That's telling. the scale yeah. um, at which that isn't even the full picture. And we, the city is yet to release yeah. data on the number of evictions yeah. filed. Yeah. You mentioned you all are fighting this fight to try to get all this data. So we try to leave our audience with a call to action or something that people can do. So what can listeners do to, to participate, to help you all out, to help you in this, this movement? Mm-hmm. My plug is to support the work of the Right to Counsel NYC Coalition, um, who were core collaborators on the Worst Evictors NYC map. And um, I think as we have seen and heard today and like the scale of evictions, mm-hmm. how significant of a win um, the Right to Counsel yeah. is um, and that folks who are income eligible can have a legal Right to Counsel um, is significant given the scale of mm-hmm. eviction citywide. Um, so finding ways to plug in and support the expansion of RTC is is huge. Um, it's currently in effect in about 20 zip codes, and then the hope is for it to get citywide um, across the years. And so continuing to advocate and support the expansion to other zip codes is core. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I would definitely um, second that. I think um, just one quick one quick uh, more like concrete event that's coming up that the right to counsel is leading is um, this evictions tribunal that's happening in late October. And I'm happy to share a link about that. Yeah. We would love to put a link on our website and share it on our social media channels. Absolutely. Great. Yeah. Yeah. So essentially, I mean, kind of part two of this, you know, worst evictors project and something that actually has been in plans for quite some time, even before, you know, the mapping project got involved was, this plan for this, this what is essentially a trial, mm-hmm. where in October there's going to be this international coalition of folks who's actually run a tribunal in many different places around the world. And there's going to be a trial, um, you know, as kind of this performance against some of these worst evictors mm-hmm. in the city. In addition to that, there's actually going to be some folks who aren't landlords, but actually city agencies that play a role yep. in, um, you know, put a role in these processes mm-hmm. that are also going to be put on trial. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, definitely keeping updated with that. They're also looking for volunteers for people to help not only with sort of like, you know, specific pieces like they have need like call for graphic design volunteers, mm-hmm. for research volunteers, but also folks who can volunteer. There's going to be this big tabling event where a lot of community groups are going to come and essentially have this um, tenant resource um, conference where folks can come. And so they need volunteers for that as well. So we can, that's great. Yeah. We will share all of those links on our website. In addition to all of the coalitions and resources that you all mentioned during the podcast. So thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. 
now for our news roundup, where we fill you in on some highlights of what we've been up to at the Center for Constitutional Rights. The Supreme Court just heard two cases that will decide whether LGBTQIA people are protected from discrimination under existing civil rights laws. In June, we and the Transgender Law Center filed an amicus brief highlighting the stories of 30 transgender people who have experienced discrimination in the workplace. We have highlighted the case in a social media campaign, and attorney Chenieri Azie was in Washington for oral argument and surrounding events. Now, we wait to see what the court will do. We recently asked a federal court to consider whether new evidence in the murder of Washington Post columnist Jamal Khashoggi could clear the life sentence of Muslim-American torture survivor Ahmed Abu Ali. In 2003, Mr. Abu Ali was detained by officers of a secret domestic police agency in Saudi Arabia. This is the same agency involved in Khashoggi's murder and its cover-up. During interrogations, Abu Ali was coerced under torture into confessing to involvement in a Saudi al-Qaeda cell. This confession later served as a basis for his U.S. prosecution. At trial, the government's chief witnesses were his jailers and interrogators, who denied that he was tortured. Our motion argues that the Saudi testimony was false and the U.S. government knew or should have known it relied on fraudulent testimony in violation of Mr. Abu Ali's due process rights. We ask the court to vacate Mr. Abu Ali's conviction and life without parole sentence. Victims of U.S. torture recently appealed the International Criminal Court's rejection of the prosecutor's request to open an investigation into crimes in Afghanistan. The investigation would involve alleged crimes in and related to the armed conflict in Afghanistan, including those of U.S. officials through the Bush-era torture program. The court has never before rejected a prosecutor's request to open an investigation. The ruling prolongs the impunity U.S. political leaders, CIA officials, and private contractors have enjoyed for far too long. It followed a hostile campaign led by the Trump administration, including the administration revoking the visa of the ICC prosecutor, threatening the visas of other ICC staff, and promising economic sanctions. We serve as legal representative in the proceedings for two men who remain detained at Guantanamo, Guled Hassan Duran and Sharkawi Al-Hajj. The appeals chamber has set a hearing in The Hague for December 4th through 6th, 2019. Attorney Katie Gallagher will argue that the investigation should be authorized without further delay. The Ninth Circuit heard arguments on two border-related cases. East Bay Sanctuary v. Trump is commonly referred to as the asylum ban case, and Innovation Law Lab v. McAleen challenges the Remain in Mexico policy. Both policies have contributed to a worsening humanitarian crisis at the southern U.S. border. The panel of judges pressed the government on its arguments and seemed to suggest that the government was returning asylum seekers to face persecution and torture. This practice, called non-refoulement, is a violation of international law. Meanwhile, we're demanding answers on the recent surge in fines for people in sanctuary. We filed a Freedom of Information Act request with grassroots groups demanding records from the Trump administration. The request sought documents on recent exorbitant civil fines against people who have taken sanctuary while pursuing their legal remedies to remain in the U.S. This past summer, some people started receiving notices for failure to depart. The Department of Homeland Security said it planned to fine them hundreds of thousands of dollars within a few weeks, citing a rarely used provision of the Immigration and Nationality Act. 
Finally, we filed an amicus brief in a case brought by Guatemalans and their families seeking accountability from corporations that engaged in human experimentation. From 1945 to 1956, in what has been called the offshore companion to the Tuskegee syphilis study, American doctors and researchers carried out non-consensual medical experiments on unsuspecting Guatemalans. These experiments infected hundreds with syphilis and other STIs. They were kept largely secret until 2010 when records resurfaced. In 2015, 774 plaintiffs launched a case against Johns Hopkins University, the Rockefeller Foundation, and Bristol-Myers Squibb for their roles in the experiments. Our brief to the Fourth Circuit argues that the Supreme Court's ruling in a recent alien tort statute case, Jesner v. Arab Bank, does not prevent U.S. corporations from being held accountable for international law violations like the ones in this case. The Real AF. The Real AF. Yeah, I just need you to say The Real AF. The Real AF. This is The Real AF. I'm Leah Todd. I'm here with Rob Santiago, and we're joined by Lisa Levy, our Human Resources Manager here at the Center for Constitutional Rights. Hi, thanks for joining us, Lisa. Hi, uh, thanks. I'm so happy to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Uh, our questions are, are pretty much straight-up straight, straight up SAT-type questions, so it should be, <laughs> it should be kind of easy. Two trains are traveling in opposite directions. <laughs> That's a blast from the way past. There you go. <laughs> So let's go right in, right into it. Would you rather read an awesome book or watch a good movie? Oh, probably rather read an awesome book. I have a pile of books at my bedstand, and I try to go through them, and I will just turn out a book like in a night if I really love it. Um, but sometimes I just struggle with finding good books. So sometimes I ask people around CCR for recommendations. What have you read? What have you really liked? Um, but when I find a book that I love, I'm like in it. And it's like a movie because it's just so real and I get just so excited by it. So definitely book. Oh, great. What was the last last great book that you read? That's a tough one that I'm going to have to think a little bit more about. But there's some favorite authors. I like Octavia Butler. Hey. Um, <laughs> James Baldwin. Nice. Who else? Uh, Anne McEwen. Mm. So relatively eclectic and i've just started reading some uh nk jameson so i lean sci-fi would you rather reverse one decision you make every day or be able to stop time for 10 seconds every day gosh i think rather stop time for 10 seconds i tend to like in the in the moment any i'm asked anything i say no and then i'm like wait a second i just need some more time to, to think more about it and lean into it. And I would find that if I had that other skill, I would just be questioning everything I did all the time if I could reverse something. So we all want to re- reverse things. Certainly there are mistakes that you made, but I like to like move on and try to leave it in the past and learn from it for the future. But so having a little more time to sort of process and not react emotionally or quickly would be very helpful and invaluable to me. Very maybe healthy. more than 10 seconds would be good. Yeah. <laughs> I should like to sleep on it and then, and then be able to react. But my, my first, just as a warning, my initial reactions are usually never good. So 
if anyone needs something or wants something from me, you know, be prepared to like to get in slowly and so, give me a chance to like let it percolate a little bit. Maybe give, just stand yeah. there and pause ten seconds <laughs> yes. and then ask again. <laughs> yes, that's the secret to getting what you want from HR, just giving me <laughs> ten seconds or something like that. Would you rather never speak again or never stop talking? Gosh, uh, probably never stop talking. I think um, when I was growing up, I was very, very quiet. So I didn't speak a lot in class and I didn't speak a lot in, in public. And I really struggled with finding my voice. And I probably still do sometimes, you know, so I find that when I say something, I try to have it mean something and, and be kind and purposeful. And so it's, I guess it's something that I would not want to voluntarily give up the voice that I've tried hard to get. I'm feeling nourished by all these like healthy answers. You're yeah. Doing. Oh, yeah. It's really yeah. nice. Yeah. Feeling very inspired. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I'm the youngest of four, so I never got to talk. I, <laughs> I feel, your, feel your pain on that one. Would you rather be able to control fire or water? Water. I really am a little bit uh, afraid of fire. I don't. I'd so rather not dangerous. control it. Oh well, I guess I'd rather just not be near it to control it. So to have it in Fair. the palm of my hand sounds like I'd rather keep it distance. But it can control the water to put it out. Yes, I can control the water to put it out exactly. Okay. And water is just go- well. I mean, fire is. They both are just gorgeous when you look at them and you can see the the colors and the shapes. But mm. I, I like water. Okay. So uh-huh. if you love water, I mean, would you rather go? Deep sea diving or bungee jumping? Well, <laughs> where's that fire? Both, where's that fire? Both that water, I guess. I guess, I guess so. Over water. Uh, well, deep sea diving, probably not because sharks. Sharks are terrifying. They're in not deep sea. They're in deep sea. They're everywhere. In Jersey. You always have to be careful of sharks. But bungee jumping, the problem with that is that it's very high, and I don't really like heights either. So you've just pointed out two. Fears of mine, sharks and bungee jumping uh, in terms of heights. So uh, deep sea diving, because I think my hatred of heights is stronger than my fear of depths or sharks. Well, we've plumbed your deepest fears, the depths of them. Thank you so much for joining us on The Activist Files. This was a real AF with Lisa Levy and all of her fears and an insightful commentary. Yeah. Appreciate it. Thank you, Lisa. Sure, you're welcome. 